You're now listening to the Bar Stars Podcast, where we explore health, longevity, and performance. I'm your host, Edward Checo, and we'll be diving deeper into topics I've been studying for the last 10 years as a catastatics expert. You're so close to your goal that planche, handstand, muscle-up is right there. You can feel it. But shit, your wrist hurts. You don't know how it happened or where it came from, but now you have a decision. Do you set yourself back months or do you wrap it up? Of course, any injury, you need to price it. Protect, rest, ice, compress, elevate. Then if it's still not better, you should see a professional. But what if it's not a full-blown injury? It's just a slight pain. Not enough for serious concern, but just enough to stop you from training towards your goals. Well, we launched the Barstars Wrist Wraps. We tested samples for over a year before deciding the best one. We want to put out the best quality product. We want to protect your wrists, aid you in your goals. We want to provide the support you need for the leans, the upside down holds, the rotations. But at the same time, it has to be breathable, flexible, and not stiff. If it's not breathable, you sweat. And if it's stiff, it won't let you lean or rotate without you know, generating more force and making your wrist worse. We can surely say that we came out with the best wrist wraps on the market. All that and they look sick with the Barstars logo. You will definitely have people asking you about them when you rock them. And for a limited time, buy a pair of the wrist wraps and get a free PDF. How to do the infamous planche push-up. A step-by-step tutorial with pictures, links to videos, and a workout schedule laid out to get you the planche push-up. And get it for free with your purchase of our wrist wraps. There's a limited time bonus and we will separate the products soon. So get it while you can. www.barstars.com Today I have on Rain Bennett. He created the documentary Raise Up, The World Is Our Gym, where it documents the New York-based calisthenics movement and its spread across the world, featuring people like Giant, The Bartenders, Beast, Hannibal, For King, Zeph, The Street Workout Championships, and many more who practice calisthenics across the world, finding out its origins and its evolution and its inspiration. Ray Ben is a two-time Emmy-nominated filmmaker, writer, and competitive storyteller, and he hosts a podcast called The Storytelling Lab. We talk about How would he do Raise Up again if he had to redo it today? What was left out of the movie? Will there be a Raise Up Part 2? And his transformation on the keto diet and how he fasts once a week. Alright, enjoy. What's up, what's up everyone? It's Ed here from Bar Stars. And today I'm joined by documentary filmmaker Rain Bennett. The creator of Raise Up, The World Is Our Gym. The first calisthenics documentary that captured the movement here from New York City to all over the globe. How you doing, Rain? Yeah, good. How are you, man? I'm good. I'm good. I'm chilling. So tell us about the documentary so people that don't know could learn a little bit about it. Well, the documentary basically chronicles what I saw as not the origin of calisthenics, like, you know, in general, but this specific movement that came out of parks and playgrounds that had style to it, that had finesse, that that had rhythm and and just it looked like an art form right and the first place that i saw that was it was in new york and so when i moved into new york moved up to new york this is about 2009 or 10 um i learned about like the whole community culture that was there right there was a lot of different teams etc cetera, etc cetera. and then as you know it went global went all over the place and so 
you know, at first why I was following the first thing that's interesting about this culture and this community and this, this lifestyle is like visually, right? So as a, as a filmmaker, as a visual storyteller, when I saw the, the, the things that these guys and girls were doing on the bar, which are crazy, it was visually like stunning, like appealing. So that's what caught my eye first. It caught a lot of people's eye. But the difference is, uh, what made me want to tell the story of it was the heart of the culture that I saw. Okay. It was like a social movement. It was getting people off the streets, out of gangs, off of drugs, like, like everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people were having these, um, I don't know what you want to call them success stories or just like turning their lives around through body weight exercises. So I was already an athlete and into sports and into fitness, but seeing that it was like changing lives, that's what made me want to tell the story of it. And so I picked up trying to tell the story around 2010, 11, 12. I traveled all over the world for it. And um, we finished filming around 2015. The movie came out in 2017. So it's been out for well, three years now, which is crazy. And it's available on Red Bull TV uh, and also Amazon and VHX and a couple other um, couple other um, places where you can stream that. Uh, the main question, why is it not on Netflix? Why is it not on Netflix? So, um, well, there's a couple different reasons, right? The fir first of all, I just want to address like as a filmmaker, as an audience member, people tend to think that Netflix is like the end all be all, right? And it's not. It depends on the film. Right now, we're lucky we're in this fortunate time, especially for documentary filmmakers. There's a lot of different channels that things can go on, which is great. Um, that, you know, a lot of your listeners and you yourself may have watched a lot of cool documentaries out there. Netflix does has a, have a lot of, but, uh, there was a couple reasons that we, we didn't try to go to Netflix one. I mean, it's at that time, you know, you could pay a little bit of money and get on Netflix, but, if you did, if you had an unknown topic and were pretty much an unknown filmmaker, you're not going to get a deal with Netflix. It's not going to get, you're not going to get paid. You're not going to get a deal to, to put it on there. You're going to pay to get it on there. And since it's a subscription model, you don't get any, any of the revenue for that. Right. And then at that time, I also think that Netflix wasn't in, in all uh, countries. I think that was a part that played in it as well. So for me, my goal was to get as many eyes on it as possible. Netflix would have been great, but we found a great home in Red Bull TV, which was perfect for this. This is a very like niche film, right? It's about a, a, a niche, niche subculture that not a lot of people know about. Okay, so um, it just wasn't. It wasn't a fit for us, but Red Bull TV, which is about action sports and at the time was actually um, licensing a lot of hip hop documentaries. It kind of was like the perfect marriage for them. And then we wanted to have some options, too, for people that wanted to own the film. So then we put it on uh, VHX and, and, and Amazon and iTunes at the time, too. But, yeah, a lot of people that aren't familiar with the filmmaking business think that, like, it's Netflix or nothing. And now I didn't even know Red Bull TV. Red Bull had a streaming channel before this right and there's a lot there's obviously the big ones like hulu and amazon netflix uh but there's a lot of little ones too that you can that can be a good place for your content why do you feel like it was you that had to do the documentary well it wasn't me that had to do it why i thought i would was one of the people who could do it why i felt compelled to make this movie 
was because I fell in love with the culture myself. I became a part of the culture myself. I trained this way. I became friends with the people in the culture. Um, at the time, I think, I'm not sure what year we met, Ed, I, but when I moved up to New York, 2010 and 11, and, and the concept of this film was already, we had already kind of, you know, initiated that, like the seed of it. So I was like doing research and reaching out to people and getting to know people. And at that time, and even probably, and even still now, there's a ton of, uh, there were a ton of different attempts to do something with this show, make it a reality show, make it a movie, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And all of them failed pretty much as far as I'm concerned, or as far as I know, because I haven't seen any, anything out there. Um, and the reason I always thought that was, was because the people, and I met some of those people, were kind of coming from the outside you know, the outside and trying to go into this culture. And I think what allowed me to have some success in being able to tell this story was, was getting on the inside first, getting to know people, being able to train with people and break bread with them. That's what allowed me to establish relationships. And the film was completely like there, there would be no film without the, the relationships that I established. Like no question. How did the how did you earn your trust among catastatics athletes? Uh, I think by just be you know having my heart in the right place and trying to be as authentic as as possible and actually caring about the sport and the culture. Um, uh, I spent time with them. You know, sometimes it just takes time. I worked out with them. I mean, that was the main thing for something like this. Is like if you go in there and get sets with them, you know, even if you're not competing, because like you know, if I when I started following people, I'm following people competing in championships and like the best of the best, right? So I was wasn't on their level, but I could hold my own, and I can definitely work out because I enjoy it. So even if I'm not doing crazy flips and tricks and stuff like that, like I can still you know put in numbers because I got a lot of heart, and so I think a lot of that helped when I would, um, I had already started filming, but I remember whenever I would do a few things that I could do, people being like, Oh shit. You know, like they didn't know that, uh, that I was kind of a part of it too. And so when that, Oh, that moment happens, you open a door there. Right. And so then it just becomes, like I said, it's all comes back to relationships. And once you build that relationship with somebody, then you can ask them questions about their lives and why they're dedicate themselves to this and what this really means to them, you know, but you have to build that rapport first. And that's part of someone's job as a as an interviewer. That's why good interviewers are able to get good content out of their people. Is they're able to establish a human connection. That's what it all comes back to. So, um, I think time and being able being a part of the community and actually caring about calisthenics and what it did for the communities and for the world, I think that helped. I, I saw a lot of people trying to capitalize on it and just like they didn't get it but they were trying to make a show about it or something like that right um and i feel like the community members in the calisthenics community sniffed that out easily they still may have tried to work with them because why wouldn't you you know be in a book or be on a tv show but a lot of them never stuck because here's another thing too you whatever thing you make the film the tv show or whatever you got to go sell that to somebody and so the people would see this and maybe they were a director or a producer and they'd be like, oh my God, I got to make a show about this. And they, they thought it was cool, right? But they didn't really get it. And if they didn't really get it, they had a hard time selling it to the people who would buy it and put it on, right? And so for me, I just kind of took the ball in my own hands and like said, I'm going to make this film for me and, and talk about the things that I love about it. 
and just see where it goes and try to get it and do it for the community. Like that my whole, my whole goal from the very beginning was to make a film for the community, not like let's just showcase what these people are doing. But like I want my goal and I hope that I achieved it was to make something with the same heart that I saw in the community itself. Are you happy with the final product that you have out? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as an, as an artist, um, of any type, you know, you're always your own worst critic, right? And when you see, I had this conversation the other day with a friend, I just finished a short film this summer and it got accepted to its first festival. And, you know, the cast members are all excited about it and I like it too, but it's like, you don't even have time to think about, is it good or not? You just want to be better each, each time you do a thing, right? Each movie make you want to get better. So do I watch it now and, and, and think, I could, you know, could have done something even doper here. Of course, you know, um, oh, this part could have been a little bit better. Like, yeah, I'm always going to criticize it. I haven't watched it in a while. Um, but if it comes to like a yes or no question, absolutely. Like I love it. And, but the thing is when you make something like this, you make it for the audience and that's what really makes me complete and content and happy with it was the response that I got. Right. So when people write and tell me, even like when you posted about, um, you know, posted about the podcast that we record on your Instagram, people were saying like, Oh, that was a dope documentary. Like, great. Then, then, then that's the feedback that I need. You can't really rely on the feedback in your own head about your own work because it's always going to be with a critical eye and, you know, wishing you could have done something else. But at some point you just got to say, all right, it's complete. I'm putting it out in the world and don't be afraid and just put it out in the world and let it be. All right. So you talked about how some of the feedback was, uh, you had a dope video. A lot of people did like it, but I'm sure you also got some criticism from it, uh, from calisthenics based people. Have you heard any of it? And if you did, what would, how would you address it? Like, what are some of the things that people said that you felt came across like a, a negative response to it? I don't know. I didn't hear a lot. If I did he hear any, most legitimately, most of the, com the comments and 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 uh, feedback that I heard was was all positive. Um, you know, part of what I wanted to do from the beginning which is a little scary when you actually care about the, the, the community and the fan base and the audience you're making it for was to, to show it to people even before we released it. So the first screening that I did in New York of it was in 2015 and it was nowhere near, uh, ready. But the purpose of those like test screenings is to get feedback and make it as good as possible. Right. That's, that's your goal. And so there was feedback that I got then that definitely helped shape uh, the next version of it. And then we, we premiered it in 2016 at the hip hop film festival in Harlem, which you were at. And there were moments, there was some feedback I got, but everybody really loved it. But it was more like I watched it in that room and saw what people like really liked and where moments were quiet, you know, and I just picked up on things. And so we came back and added a few other things and all that. So I, I, yeah, most of the time, I mean, like I said, I released it three years ago, so um, I don't recall any specific, you know, criticisms or whatever, but, you know, that type of thing, you just, again, like, when you're an artist putting something out, you know, at some point, like I said uh, earlier, like, you just got to be bold enough and just say, okay, it's done, and put it out, and then you have to just, like, deal with any of that, and you, no, nobody, nobody's going to like everything, you know, it's just, just the way it is. If you could go back in time, is there any way you would have done it differently? Hmm. I mean, sure. Um, 
just in terms of planning. Like I kind of winged it and built the plane as I flew it type of thing with this movie. So a lot of what made it really hard to, to get to the finish line was just organization and like direction and planning. So, um, again, it was just me for the longest time for years working on this. Um, and so during those years and I'm the one filming, I'm the one flying all over. I'm the one trying to edit, like, you know, just the organization of the production was, was sloppy. And so that's something that would have made my job a lot easier. And just thinking about where I wanted to go with it earlier in the process, I was just the first couple of years was just capturing content, capturing content. And I I like to build things that way, build documentaries that way, but it is, it's, uh, difficult. You know, I wish, I wish I'd had a little, little more planning, but in terms of, um, any other approach? Uh, no, I don't think so. I'm re- I'm really happy, really happy with how it came out because honestly, Ed, like a lot of projects like these, most by far, most thousands every year, don't even make it to the finish line, much less get on a platform where people can go watch it all over the world. Like that's such a small percentage. And since I've been a filmmaker for like 15 years now, I know how small that percentage is of projects that can that get made and completed and never seen and the percentage of ones that get started and never completed so honestly it's such a huge win to do an indie you know documentary film like this and get to the finish line it's an even bigger win to to get it somewhere where red bull's willing to say like you know what we think this has something good enough to where we can take it and sell it to you know to our our people so i'm i'm super happy with it but you know, it was a ragtag, like thrown together type of thing. So I didn't have a lot of money, didn't have any crew, didn't have great equipment. It was all about trying to get to the heart of the story and the heart of the culture and represent that as as, as best as I could. So uh, uh, going back to the question before about the criticism, I've actually heard criticisms from two different sides. So I've heard from uh, European-based athletes saying that it focused too much on New York. And then I've heard from New York athletes saying that it focused not enough on New York. <sighs> yeah. So <laughs> the funny thing, I mean, this is this is a, a divide that even making the movie was very clear, right? The, the the Europe and the New York side. And at the time, now America or the U.S. will say has a lot of different groups, but at the time, New York was representative of like America of U.S. Right now, now that's not uh, not so much the case. You have all these different communities that have their own their own version, their own culture of it. So. Um, that was a line that we had to ride when I started this. First of all, I'll say like, I don't know how anybody can say that it's not enough New York. It was almost all New York. I mean, this was one city in one country and this was a sport and a culture that was participated in by uh, lots of countries on many continents. Right. So, uh, and if you, you can add up the percentage of the film, but I remember when it changed at the street workout world championship in the film and my guess was that it that was at like two thirds of the way through the movie or something. It was an 80 minute movie. So about 50 or 60 minutes was covering New York. And that was for a reason. That's because New York is the culture that I fell in love with. Right. This was my story that I was telling. The beautiful thing about storytelling is that you and I could make the same movie with the same resources. Ten of us, 20 of us could make the same movie or about the same topic with the same resources, et cetera, et cetera. And with the same interview subjects and all that, and all 20 of those would be different stories, 
because it's all about like your own perspective. So this was the film that I, that I was making. Now I remember specifically when I heard about what was going on in Latvia with the street workout world championships, you went in 2011. I didn't go, but I heard about it of course. And I saw the pictures and at that time, what I was telling was 100% just a New York story. That's it. But when that happened, I was like, I would be doing a disservice to this whole community that's emerging if I didn't follow that. Like, you now this is all over the world. And if I just told a New York story, you could. You could do an anthology about New York calisthenics. Let's be clear. Um, like, the you know, a 10-DVD box set. But uh, this was unique and nobody had covered it at the time. And all of a sudden there's a world championship that was just put on by themselves. There was no major sponsors behind. So I was like, there's no way I can tell this story and not show that it just went and splintered off into all these different countries. We had to. So, um, yeah, I mean, I I I think it ended up being the right percentage for the story that I wanted to tell because what I saw first and what I fell in love with was the New York culture of calisthenics. Hands down, always felt that way. That's what I fell in love with. But you got to kind of follow where the story goes, and the story went other places. And and honestly, I don't. We didn't have enough time to dive into, uh, dive into Europe and things that were happening on different continents. We touched on it, but it kind of ends. The movie kind of ends with the culture spreading to all these different countries. It didn't follow anything from that, you know, which kind of left it open-ended. It, it, I think we ended filming in like 2014 or 15. And as you know, in those years, it just kept skyrocketing. What ended up on the cutting room floor that you would add, or you felt like it was, it was a strong consideration of before cutting room? Man, I mean, a lot, a lot of stuff. Um, I have so many interviews. There's people, I mean, there's a lot of interviews that I shot that aren't even in the movie at all, you know, or maybe just one line, you know? So I've got a lot of content that I've been contemplating what to do with, you know, we get the license back for the film in 2021. So if anybody wants to watch it, uh, it's still fit free on Red Bull TV. It's a streaming channel or they can go to the website. Um, but we, we get it back in 2021 completely. And I've been thinking like, is there, you know, room for another story? You know, what should we release some of these, some of the interviews? Cause we've got tons of content. I mean, it's not even comparable, the, the stuff that made it in versus the stuff that made it, that didn't make it. I mean, 5% made it in the movie. So that means 95% is sitting on the floor somewhere. I mean, that's just a guess, but it's something like that. Cause I have hour long interviews that, that didn't even make the cut. That was really tough. But the thing I've also learned about storytelling is you can't tell a thousand stories in one story. And the first versions of this, the very first version of this film was like three hours long. I don't think anybody saw that version, but I'm just saying the first like full cut that I finished was three hours long. Nobody's going to want to watch that. And there was a lot of, um, you remember Michael, uh, the writer from Vanity Fair and Men's Health? Yeah. So this is something I always attribute to him because he, he during that time was watching and giving me feedback on those early cuts that were just terrible. And he said this great line that I still, I still remember uh, about there, there being too much inside baseball going on. And what that means is for those who aren't familiar with that expression is like nuanced, you know, content or information that only the people that are very closely tied to the community would understand. And so what that means is like, little bickering or little fighting or characters that you see once, but you can't 
place who they are. Like you and I would know because we're calisthenics nerds. We know who that is and we can see him once and, and know how he's related to this character and this character and this character. But for the first time average viewer, they wouldn't. And so you would lose them. And when you lose them, you bore them and then your movie sucks. So, um, even the stuff that I thought at one point was worth making the film had to get cut. Cause if the first cut was three hours, you know, that's, that, that's, uh, 180 minutes. And we, we chopped it down to the final product, which was 80 minutes. So a hundred minutes from the first version <laughs> was cut. So a lot, that's the only way I can answer that question. But I do have a lot of dope interviews in the can. Can you I pick didn't... one? I, I would like to hear one that I didn't get to see and raise up. One scene or interview or moment that you feel like, damn, this was this was tough not putting it into the movie. I honestly don't know. At one point, this isn't the direct answer to your question, but I'm just remembering some stuff we cut. At one point, we got into the different like Russian federations, you know, like the Morris versus Dennis Menon type of thing that was brewing. And that was just too far out. It didn't have anything to do with our core story. See, the core story was the New York story. So even the people that we followed after that were were kind of from that original story and branched off like a tree, you know? Um, but there's nothing, I'm sorry. I know, I know you want a, a you know, a sexier answer than that, but there's, there's not one moment that I'm just like, Oh, I hated cutting that, that I can recall right now. If you'd asked me this question in 2016, I'm, I may have a, d- a different answer. Um, but yeah, there's, there, there's not one, one in particular that I can think of. There's a lot of different interviews that I, um, would have liked to have gotten out there. You know, that's the, that's the thing that bums me out is that there's all these great interviews that great things were said during that nobody got the chance to see. And like, though it's not like somebody's interviewing them the next week or next month. That was, that was their interview. You know, do you think it's important for uh, younger cast X athletes now to uh, know the history, whether through your DVD or just in general? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, do they have to be an expert? No, but you sh- yeah, yeah, you should know where it comes from. I think that some of the OGs um, probably hold on to that belief a little too much, like it's required reading and they're offended <laughs> that they don't. You know what I'm saying? Like that's not – like let's look at any other culture, you know? Um, but it'd be like being a football player and not knowing who, you know, Joe Namath was or Lawrence Taylor. You know what I'm saying? Like – Come on, <laughs> like you should at least know know something about him. You don't have to know the, the you know the tight end from the seventy two Miami Dolphins, but like you know you you should know the the basics. And for me, why I think that's important specifically is not just because we say so, but to understand what's at the heart of this movement and where it started from and and, and what it what it really is and what it was, right? Um, because what made this different and unique was ha- was the way it started, right? Was the way it started. Um, You know, where it's at now as a sport, to be honest with you, I haven't followed it very closely. I'm still friends with a lot of the people um, that are in the sport, but a lot of them are phasing out. Many of them have phased out. And so the newer community, I don't even know. I don't even know them. Um, And, um, you know, I'm not sure where the sport stands now. I haven't talked to Morris in a while, so I'm not sure like where uh, they're still chugging along. But I'm not sure like if there's any new developments. But at one point, I, as far as I can see it, it was like climbing and climbing and climbing, and then it seems to have plateaued a little bit. Again, I haven't been in touch with the community in in years at this point. But if it did, I would I would probably argue because 
it still hasn't like found its its true identity. Like, what is this thing? And that's why nobody going back to people trying to make TV shows about it. Nobody could really sell it because nobody knew what it was. Like, if you don't know what something is, you can't sell it. Very simple. Clarity. Clarity is everything. Like, what what am I watching here? And nobody could explain it. And even now, it's not easy to explain. So how can it be its 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 own thing? And so, I feel like what it was initially was its own thing and it was very clear what we were seeing in the parks of New York when we were just getting started in like 2009, eight, nine. Right. Um, so yeah, I think the history is, is important. I mean, if you're in the military, like you want to know old battles and old wars that were fought, you know, if you're, if you're into anything, I think that you should know where it comes from, but I do feel like you know, you don't need to be able to, to be an expert. There are historians for that. There are people like me, you know, like I know the history and I documented the history. I know, you know, a decent amount of the history, not as much as some people, but more than a lot. And so I documented it. So it's important for me to, to get all those stories from, from beast and giant, you know, and, and, and people that were doing this a long time ago, because I'm, I'm telling a story about it. But if I'm just out here doing pull-ups in my neighborhood park, I don't need to know that. What was your approach to there's times in the movie or in the history in general where there's conflicting stories, right? Uh, someone says, hey, I did this. I <laughs> yeah, did yeah, that. yeah. Do you feel like uh, you're forced to pick or? No, no, um, no. So as, as a documentary filmmaker, what you want to do, like a journalist, you want to be ob- as objective as possible, right? You're never going to be all the way objective. Just like we said, you know, I was telling this story from my unique perspective and that's why it's very heavily, you know, New York based because that was the story as I saw it. But, um, I mean, some documentary filmmakers do this. Like if you're, if you watch Michael Moore documentaries, you know, he's got a clear stance on the topics he's talking about, but most journalists don't, don't do that. My job was to present both sides as equally as possible and then let the audience decide because, and why I would do that as an artist anyway, even if I wasn't approaching it from a journalistic perspective or or standpoint, why I would do that as a person, as an artist is because I know in my experience, the truth always lies somewhere there in the middle, right? It's never really fully this way or fully that way. Generally speaking, from my experience, it's usually a combination of both or somewhere there in the middle, right? And so the best way that we can get to that point or get to truth, if you will, is to hear both sides and consider, you know, other things that may be influencing those thoughts, those stances or whatever, you know? But you're right. There was a lot of that to, to navigate. What are the chances of a raise up part two? I've been thinking, I've thought about that for a long time. I've had different, different thoughts uh, of what that might look like, what stories it might follow. I think there's a, a decent chance. Um, like I said, it's been a while since I've been in touch with the community and I do miss it a little bit. That was my life for five or six years. So when it finished, I was, I'll be honest, I was glad for it to be done for a little while and, and, and do something else and not just be consumed with this one culture because I have a lot of different interests, a lot of other stories I wanted to tell. But like I said, we get, we get the light, the rights back, the, all the rights back in 2021 year and uh, that's made me think about would I want to jump back into telling a different story or would I just want to release some of the unreleased interviews, which, you know, we did one or two of those uh, back in 2017 and they're still getting a lot of views. I remember I put out one with uh, Danny and Al Cavadlo and like people, I still get comments on that, on that video. I just put like a 30 minute interview on YouTube. 
Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'd be interested to see if the community would want something like that. Um, but I would have to, to think about what story I wanted to tell. What I would want to do is follow a small group of characters and their lives and their journey through this and kind of show what calisthenics does for people instead of this piece. That's kind of a hybrid, like history documentary, you know, like raise up the part one, I guess we can call it was the world is our gym. Um, a lot of that was just chronicling this moment in time, but I would want the sequel to be more character based to follow someone's journey through calisthenics, you know, preferably somebody just starting out or someone who's transformed their life through calisthenics, that would be dope for me to do. And, you know, the reason is when you follow less people, you can go deeper. And that's what I would want to do, not go wider, but go deeper with the, with the story. It'd be cool to follow like three people, like an OG, yep. uh, someone who's like already competing, and then someone who's just like learning. 100% agree. I think it'd yep. be really cool. Yeah. That, do you that's think you'll have a better funding and a, a bigger budget if you were to go for part two? Seeing as yeah. part one was based on your income completely. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, yeah, I think so, because we've proven ourselves uh, with the first one. I've continued to grow as a filmmaker and a business person since then. So like, I have more connections. I have more people that might want to see that happen. As far as, you know, as far as uh, independent documentary films go, the first one was a success. And so really, that's all you that's not all you need, you know, to make a film. But that's a big thing. If you can take your own money and raise your own money um, yourself and go make a film and then sell it to someone like someone is going to be more willing to say, okay, we'll give you X amount of money, you know, to go make this movie now, which would be great. And we already have an audience built in for it. So I think, I think it would be better. It doesn't mean that, Oh, we'd have $400,000 to go make a documentary, but I think we'd have more support. I don't know if that means like a big budget because it's still a documentary film and it's still about a, a culture that, is not really more heard of now than it was when this came out in 2017, to be honest. I mean, maybe marginally, but not really. You know, I haven't seen it on on network TV or anything like that. It's not like Ninja Warrior or CrossFit or anything like that. It's still a niche, very niche subculture. So, you know, nobody's going to come give you a huge check to go make a movie, but they may invest in you a little bit if you've proven that you can reach an audience with it. Cool. The good thing about that now is people like – people, are consuming content everywhere. We've never watched more video content and documentaries spe specifically than we have now. So that's to our favor. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Switching gears a little bit. Um, yeah. The keto diet. I actually uh, heard about it from like uh, the biohacking community, Tim Ferriss, Dave Asprey, a couple years ago. Sure. But the yeah. first person I seen it like transform was you. I think I was hey. in Miami and I remember you like in New York. I was somewhere not in New York and you're in New York and you're in Randall's Island. Was it Randall's? It was Queens on the pull-up bar. And I was like, holy shit, Rain <laughs> Bennett has a six-pack. Now, now at the time, Rain was a little bit bigger. Wayne worked out. I've had a couple workouts with Rain. He's, he's athletic, yeah, yeah, definitely yeah. beyond normal athletic. He can muscle up, do flags and stuff. But I was like, holy shit, Rain got shredded. And I remember yes, hitting you up funny. and you said, uh, I'm doing keto. Yeah. So I, I, after that, I, tried, I started trying keto. I lost a lot of weight. Uh, mm. I got my blood test, my cholesterol a little bit off. So mm -hmm. I stopped doing it. Um, yeah. I didn't crash how a lot of people take upon diets. I ended up, I made a conscious decision like, okay, I'm done with keto. What was your experience with keto? What made you start it? How did you yeah. feel? And uh, how much weight did you lose? 
Uh, so I found out about it initially from the same kind of community that you did from like the biohacking community or like the MMA community listening to podcasts, Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, the fighter and the kid. Like I had just been hearing people talk about it. And so, you know, at the time I still train people, uh, on the side, I've always trained people, which is how I found out about calisthenics is I was watching YouTube videos in 2007. I was teaching, you know, group exercise classes at a gym, um, only just a couple hours a week. And so part of my job was to like, I always like to experiment with different things, different uh, workouts, different um, diets, so that if someone were to ask me for advice, I could suggest them, you know, uh, an option that I actually knew something about, that I was speaking from firsthand experience and not just something I had read or heard from Joe Rogan, right? So um, so I had heard about it. And I was like, oh, I wanted to try it out. I also at that time got, got involved with um, a uh, exogenous ketone company, which exogenous just means outside of the body because just a few years ago they were able to create a supplement that would put you into ketosis, uh, from a, from a drink, from a powder, which was never, you know, since a hundred years since, you know, you know, we learned about the ketogenic diet, that's not been possible. You had to get there by fasting or, or eating this really hard to, to stick with a diet, high fat, you know, moderate to low protein and virtually no carbs hard to do that, especially in 2020. Um, so I dove even deeper learning about exogenous ketones and what ketosis really was. And when, and then started, I got into nut- nutritional ketosis and measuring my blood and all that just cause I was nerding out on it. Right. So there's a couple different things that I realized from my experience. Um, first of all, I just want to say no, no, nothing is for everybody. Right. I fully believe and I'm not a doctor. I'm, you know, not even a nutritionist, but I fully believe we all have different body types and metabolize things differently. And what works for one person doesn't work for anybody else, for for other people necessarily. I think you got to find what works for you. Keto didn't ultimately end up working for me. One, I'll be straight up with you. It ran through me like high fat diet did not mesh with my digestive system. And it wasn't it was affecting like. I didn't just, I didn't want my days to be like that. I did lose weight. I did see some energy. The exogenous ketones was nice Wait, because. Could you, could you clarify the running through your system? You're just shitting a bunch. Shit. Yeah. Like, like diarrhea. Like, you know, like no. <laughs> what, were, no what were you eating? High fat. Specifically. Oh, I mean, you know, well, I still eat a lot of avocado, so that wasn't that bad. But like coconut oil, co- uh, uh, macadamia nuts, uh, uh, high fat, so pork, a lot of pork. Um, cheese, you know, I think I haven't been diagnosed, but I, I, I think I'm lactose intolerant. I, you know, now I've experimented enough to understand that just cheese just doesn't work well with my, with my body either. I mean, it did when I was growing up, but somewhere along the line, it just started, uh, meshing with me. Yeah. And so a lot of vegetables, a decent amount of vegetables, but not to the point that it would, that that was happening. It got to the point, Ed, why I, why I know that was the issue is like, I literally could eat one thing and it, and experience it. And it was always like a fatty thing. So when I started putting potatoes back in my diet, it changed and the stools hardened up. How long were you keto? Um, I, I did, well, it's hard to say, right? I mean, like I, did the nutritional thing for like a month or two. And then I did exogenous ketones for a while. I still, I still will take those every now and then because here's my second point about ketosis. I think the real, and, and actually you may dig this cause I know you're into this too. I think the real kicker and why the ketogenic diet works. First of all, people say they're keto and they don't even really know what that means. They just are eating like an Atkins diet. But 
the real thing about the ketogenic diet to me was the fasting aspect of it. So what I really saw my, my most, my best benefits from was a one, once a week, 24 hour fast that did more for me than, than the, um, than ketogenic diet did. Now, the exogenous ketones really helped make that fast super easy. So that's that was how I ended up using both of them. But I experimented with with uh, the keto diet for like a year, um, and and it tracks even now. If I eat if I eat something that's too fatty, I, I get good fats. I eat a ton of avocados. Still have uh, you know nuts, a lot of fish, but cheese and pork, um, pork is another fatty meat. Um, those weren't working with me. And if I get enough fats and not enough carbs, it'll just, everything will be soft and just like watery, man. It was just like this, I can't live like this. And so when I figured out that fasting helped me maintain weight, um, and you know, I use the ketones every now and then as just a supplement, that was the best recipe for me. So, you know, it's kind of like as a, as a analogy or metaphor, uh, people used to ask me, uh, like people I would train would ask me, well, what's the healthiest alcohol? I'm like, well, that, you know, there's so many different ways we can approach that. For me, the healthiest is beer be, for me because I come from a long line of alcoholics. Still, I don't really drink hard liquor like that. Every now and then I will, but I really try to shy away from it because it creates a problem. Like I can drink it like candy and it just goes down too fast and you know it's it's an addictive thing that my my family has you know historically been addicted to that's not healthy for me right um but if we're talking about like just on a weight perspective then beer would be the worst it would be clean spirits you know just straight whiskey straight tequila straight vodka no mixers that's really the worst and then wine and then beer in terms of like what has the you know the least amount of calories and is the healthiest for you? So my point is, it's different for different people. It depends on what your goals are and what lane you're in and how your body is made up and all of that and what you can sustain. The last point I'll make about the ketogenic diet is, and I don't think it was intended to be something you're perpetually on. I think even the the real loyalist and truest in that community um, promotes cycling. And that is, that is when I had success and still have success with it if I eat that style is to do it in cycles. And whether that's a five-day, two-day cycle or like do it for a month or a couple of weeks and take some time off, I don't think it was meant for us to, to be on that consistently. Um, Low-carb works for some people, but I know a lot of people that eat plenty of bread and pasta and yeah, they train hard and, and they're able to keep their shape. Um, so I just try to... My biggest issue is just like over overconsumption, just overeating and snacking. So I just try to keep it to real meals and keep snacks away. And then I fast once a week. I just got done today, uh, this morning. What was your weight when you first started keto? Your weight at the lowest point of keto and then your weight now? My weight, it wasn't a lot. I just lost body fat. Like I'm, I'm only now probably 15 pounds more than I was in, in high school. Um, I'm about 185 right now. In 2018, I had gotten down to 175 and that was nice. And I kind of hate that I put that 10 pounds back on. Uh, but I did, you know, I've had a baby in the meantime, there's been other things I didn't have it myself, but you know, um, but when I started keto, when we met, I was probably more like 195. 
And keto got me to like, I'd say 181, 180, you know, about 15 pounds. But the the look was different, you know. I'm short, and so if, if I put on 5 or 10 pounds, it doesn't have a lot of places to go. It goes wide, right? So my cheeks get chubby, my belly, you know, holds a little bit. Uh, like, like it is right now, sadly. Um, but I, like you said, I always worked out, I always run, I always ride the bike. I play in a soccer league. Like I'm good to go in terms of like my physical capabilities, but, um, you know, my weight can, can fluctuate a little bit, but not, not a lot. And so, but when I got down to 181, um, I was pretty lean at that point. Um, two years ago when I got to 175, that was like, that's about what I was. I think I was 170 in high school. That's the best I looked in a while. And that wasn't with keto. That was uh, with the one day fasting every Monday, like basically Sunday night after I eat, I go 24 hours, 24 to 36 hours uh, once a week. And I was also playing in a soccer league uh, two times a week. So, I mean, let's be honest, that's a lot of calories I was burning playing two full games of soccer a week. What got you into the fasting once a day a week? Just experimenting. I would experiment, you know, like a lot of people, the first thing that I did was uh, time-restricted or intermittent fasting, you, you'll hear people call it, which a typical window is like you 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 fast for 18 hours and you eat for uh, six or, or, um, or 16 and eight or something like that. Some people do 12 and 12. But the point is that you just you eat all your calories in a window and then you stop for a window and you stop, you don't snack, you don't, you know, you fast. And I saw a little bit of success with that, but then just continuing to listen to people that I looked up to that had experimented with it too. Um, I just started trying that, like, I wonder if I could make it like the full day. I was making 18 hours what's well, six more hours. Right. And when I consistently did that, this was 2018 around summertime to fall. Uh, that's when I really started seeing when I got down to one to 175, which was feeling good. And then, of course, you know, if you're doing calisthenics, any extra weight is not good for you. So you start to lose five pounds. I can make a lot make a lot of difference in your flags and your levers and you know your explosive movements. How hard is it to skip food for one day? And are you iterable? Iterable? How do you pronounce that word? Irritable. Oh, okay. Uh, um, it gets challenging, but you get used to it. It's not really that hard. When it, whenever I tell this to people who aren't familiar with it, they're like, oh, I could never. I couldn't make it to, to noon. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. Of course you can. You just don't want to. And that's fine. You don't have to. But you definitely can. Like as humans, we're designed to go for a long time without food. If you got water, especially if you're golden. The thing is you run into humps. And this is kind of like what runners experience, right? is you, you have these walls you have to break through. So the first wall happens to me whenever you're norm, you know, normally used to eating. I don't eat breakfast a lot now, but I grew up eating breakfast, so it used to be earlier. But now around 10 or 11 in the morning, if I'm fasting, that's when it's first saying like, yo, yo, you sure you, you don't want something to eat? You know, just a few cashews, maybe an egg, and I have to push through that. Then it gets real easy. Uh, once I put, honestly, it's like 11 o'clock. Once that shifts, I don't even think about it again until later in the day. I will also add that if you stay busy, it really doesn't mess with you. Lately, we've been in coronavirus pandemic time. We're all at home. And, you know, if you're killing time and your snacks are 20 feet away or 10 feet away, that's 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 a recipe for disaster. Um, but if, if you stay busy, if I'm out on a shoot and I'm running around, I don't even think about it. The second wall that I have that I hit is uh, and I hit it last night hard. Um I almost gave in. I was real close to giving in last night. Is like dinner time, like seven, eight, and nine. 
seven or eight was really was really challenging at that point i had been 24 hours but i wanted to go to 36 to this morning um and uh but again that stops completely it stopped completely at nine o'clock didn't even feel it at nine o'clock even this morning i woke up i wasn't hungry so i was able to push it a little bit push it a little further out so it's challenging but it's like anything you you just gotta try it and, and try it again the first day is gonna suck but what's your goal like is it worth it to you but it's not that you can't do it and i've coached people on this and and suggested they do the intermittent fasting and when they do they always have success they lose 10 pounds 15 pounds you just gotta gotta get used to it. And here's another thing I'll say about it: if you have to eat in the morning, if that's true, then okay, you just bump it up earlier. There's no set time. You choose what window you eat in. So if you can make it at ten o'clock and you're doing eight hours of eating and and sixteen hours of fasting, that's that's uh, ten to six p.m. That's pretty manageable. If you can make it at twelve, then it goes to eight. If you have to eat at eight in the morning, cool. But you're gonna have to end at uh, four or whatever or two, whatever it turns out to be. All right. Um. I'm going to end it with some of the classic catastatic questions I ask the catastatics people I have on. All right. How to start? How should you start catastatics? Baby steps, man. Start with the basics all day long. Um, you know, you, 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 a baby can, I got a two-year-old now, and she could hold her head up, and then she could be on her hands and knees, and then she could crawl, and then she could walk. Now she can run fast, and now she can jump, right? It's a logical progression. So here's the thing. I can actually speak to this uh, because I train. What I'm really good at as a trainer, I'm not training the people who I was filming for Raise Up and taking these elite athletes. I'm training people who haven't ever done a pull-up before. I can take people from zero to one or from one to two really well. So I work with a lot of women who've been told their whole lives they can't do pull-ups or push-ups or whatever. And it's simply not true. You just have to train it. So the first thing that I always have people do is just start with being able to hold your body weight up. Don't try to do anything complex. If you can't do a push-up, you start with the plank, right? And if and 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 you can do a modified version of that, or once you're able to get the strength up to 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 go down a little bit, you may have to do that on your knees, a modified push-up, right? Give yourself progressions. But you just start with being able to hold your weight. If it's a pull-up, you start with just being able to hang and work on your grip strength and work on, you know, engaging your lats and getting your core engaged and getting your body working, right? If you've never done a pull-up and never even tried any kind of like hanging exercises, hanging on the bar for 10, 15 seconds is hella hard. And it does a lot of work, right? You'll feel your back sore after that. If you do sets of 10 seconds or sets of 15 seconds, you're gonna that's going to be a good workout. So you just start with being able to hold your body weight up and then you just, you just, push the needle forward a little bit of the time and stay consistent. You try to jump too far ahead, you injure yourself and then you go backwards in time. Just add on a little bit, you know, use progressions with pull-ups. We do a lot of negatives, which means you start at the top, you step on a stool or something and get to the top position and then lower yourself down and you're able to build up your muscular endurance that way. Um, or like, you know, bar stars has the bands using bands is another way to do that. So, just takes time, man. It just, it just it just takes time, but you just start with the basics and then slowly progress from there. You got to fall fall in love with the process, but you know a lot of people get get you know uh, attracted to the tricks and the things like that, and it's just like you, you just got to take your time and get there. But if you're wanting to use calisthenics in your training, just start with the basics. Very very simple. What's something you wish you knew when you first started calisthenics? 
What's something I wish I knew when I first started calisthenics? Um, there's a lot of technique that you learn, you know, um, muscle up, you know, you pick a little bit from people that you meet along the way, but muscle ups, flags and levers, the breakthroughs that I had on those kinds of moves all happened when I learned a technique thing. It wasn't a strength thing, right? So I wish I had learned some of that earlier because then maybe you wouldn't have trained in a poor manner for a long time. You know, this, a lot of people suffer from this and that's why you see people who are strong as hell who still can't do a clean muscle up or even a back lever. Um, I actually saw a Facebook post, you know, how Facebook does like the memories, uh, I saw like one from a long, uh, you know, years ago when I was in LA and I had wrote about how I was training people out there at Santa Monica, all these top athletes, they had just competed in competition. They're doing 360 muscle ups and all this stuff. And they're, like three of them and they're ripped, they're shredded. Uh, and they couldn't do a back lever. And I'm like, bro, this should be like one of the first things that, that you learn, you know, in terms of body weight exercises, uh, like on that level. But I looked at him I'm like, you clearly have the core strength. Like, I bet you just haven't heard, you know, a few things. And all three of them within an hour, I had, they, they got their first back lever ever, ever that we like filmed. And that's because I just gave them a couple pointers on, on technique tips. So that, that, that's something that would have helped me progress. Cause I had the strength. Um, like I said, you know, I was probably carrying on a little bit too much weight, which made things like front levers and, and flags hard. Uh, but I got them through strength, but it was when I learned those little, little tips that just made the difference in how your body moves that I really was able to make strides. Awesome. All right. So you have a podcast, right? Tell us a little bit about your podcast. Yeah. So I have a podcast called the storytelling lab. What I do now, I mean, I'm still a filmmaker. I still have creative projects I'm working on all the time, not just documentaries, but also, uh, narrative films, short films that I write. But uh, when I got done with Raise Up, I'm like, all right, what am I going to do next? I, I've been through this amazing journey. I want to take all these lessons that I've learned the hard way through six years of making a film, you know, without a lot of time, money, and resources, and, and instill that in other people and help people learn things the easy way. At that time, you know, we're all having to create content now. And not, not everybody is an artist or a filmmaker or a writer, but everybody has a social media channel and is having to communicate with their audiences. And so I started focusing on how to help people engage and connect with their audience. And whether that's raising money for their nonprofit or selling their products or building their community or whatever, it, you know, deepen their impact on their communities through sharing stories, through the art and science of storytelling. I learned how to do it without a lot of time, money, and resources doing Raise Up. And so I take all those lessons and I help people understand how to be better storytellers to sell their products, find their purpose, grow their communities. And so one of the ways I do that is through my podcast called The Storytelling Lab. We have on amazing guest marketers, uh, filmmakers, writers, and we talk about you know how we can use uh, storytelling in different aspects of our business and, and brand building. Awesome. So it's uh, available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever we can hear it. Yeah, podcast. everywhere. Yeah, everywhere. It, it, it's everywhere. Most most of the people either have it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Yeah. Awesome. Thank you for stopping by today, Rain. Absolutely. My pleasure. And uh, have a great day. If you guys enjoyed the podcast, head over to barstars.com and pick up a piece of merchandise. We have apparel, t-shirts, uh, joggers, sweaters. We also have resistance bands that could also be used for assistance. If you're learning calisthenic movements like the front lever, one arm pull up or the muscle up also have different affiliate products on the page. Any purchase goes to supporting the show 
and making sure we could get out good quality content for you guys. And we hope brings pleasure and value to your life. All right. Peace.